This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm, I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Guys and gals for that matter, we've been getting a lot of female listeners lately, and welcome to all the ladies who might feel like they're uh, fly on the wall in a men's conversation, but I think the show's expanded past that, I'm happy to say, and we've been doing this for eight years, so uh, you're part of the anniversary coming up next week. Welcome you guys and girls with open arms, no matter who, what, or where you're listening, and for whatever reason. This is the show that is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. And make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here. Get some great free content, trills, and exercises that'll help you become more charismatic and confident by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs here in LA, check out the Art of Charm toolbox. That's theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got a lot of fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking, negotiation, relationship management. I'd go on and on, but there's plenty of content there, literally hundreds of hours of the show, dozens of which are Toolbox episodes. And we've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Details, bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. There's two dots in there. Or give us a call here in the office. Number's right on the website, but 888-413-7177. Or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything test me if you don't believe it. Looking forward to meeting all you here at The Art of Charm in LA or hearing from you about the show. Today we've got Dr. Chris Ryan, author of Sex at Dawn. He's been a featured speaker all over the world from TED in Long Beach, California to Festival of Dangerous Ideas at the Sydney Opera House and many things in between on multiple media outlets. He's a great interview. You'll you'll hear it here in a second. Studied human sexual behavior in prehistory, which I thought was interesting. How do you study behavior that hasn't happened for thousands of years? Why your testicles are on the outside. Well, ladies, listen up. Why, why men's balls are on the outside. I know it's a burning question. How monogamy is actually shrinking your balls and lots of other things that aren't about your balls that I just didn't write down while I was doing the show. So, And we're actually going to talk some practical steps about how to improve your relationships using evolutionary psychology in modern applications. So enjoy this one with Dr. Christopher Ryan. You've been everywhere, so reading the laundry list of news organizations and TED Talks and stuff like that is less interesting than than what you do, according to yourself. So, What the fuck do I do? Yeah, uh, yeah my name's Chris Ryan. I'm the co-author of Sex at Dawn, which just today I learned is going into its 18th printing. Pretty happy about that. Congratulations. I'm uh what the hell am I? I have a PhD in psychology, although a lot of people seem to think I'm an anthropologist because that's what a lot of my research is. And um yeah, I'm just a dude sitting behind a desk trying to write another book. Fancy. I I like it. What's the <laughs> anthropology part? Because honestly, you know, that's really interesting and a lot of people say that we're kind of anthropologists as well. That research of people is always interesting. Yeah. Well, an anthropologist is someone who studies uh, cultures and uh, individuals to some extent. And that's always been my primary interest. As far as academic degrees go, my undergraduate degrees in literature and my um, master's and doctorate are in psychology. But both of those are just ways of studying people, right? And when I was studying literature, it was mainly to see how people behave and you know, how uh, relationships function and how different societies work and all that. And then uh, when I finished my uh, undergraduate in 1984, I uh, had a couple of adventures in Alaska, which, you know, people have heard me talk about on Rogan's podcast and, and elsewhere. And they sort of blew my mind enough that I decided I wasn't going to go to grad school as I had been planning. I was sort of on an academic path. And um, but I, I had these experiences that just sort of uh, uh, opened my mind and made me want to travel and, and see the world firsthand rather than reading about it and studying it in libraries. So I I uh, ditched everything, grabbed a backpack and essentially vagabonded around the world for 15 or 20 years and uh, had all sorts of adventures and experiences and then uh, when I finally decided to go to grad school, I chose this psychology program primarily because it was flexible enough to let me do whatever I wanted <clears throat> and focus uh, on 
this multidisciplinary look at how human beings behaved sexually before the advent of agriculture. So looking at the roots of human sexuality. But before I got into that, I was um, studying a lot and, and doing some uh, publishing some academic articles and stuff about consciousness. I was very interested in shamanism and altered states of consciousness and that sort of thing. So, you know, the joke is I've done uh, sex and drugs and now I have to write about rock and roll, apparently. Right. Yeah, exactly. Does anybody ever call you out on the pun where you say agriculture and I'm looking for the roots of? No, I haven't no, heard that. No, That's you're welcome. a good one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, you know, punning's illegal in China now. Did you see that? No. Yeah. Actually, like last week, the Chinese government made wordplay illegal. That sounds like North Korea or something. I know. It's insane. How do you enforce that? You know, it's just it's ridiculous. I don't know. I'm almost waiting for a punchline from you, but I think you're serious. So No, I'm serious. Yeah. I'm serious. Yeah. I wish that there should be a pun. I'm sure there are lots of puns around that. There has to be. Yeah. I mean, it's watch Jay Leno or Jimmy Kimmel. I'm sure yeah. we'll, we'll find something. How do you study something that's not happening anymore? Human behavior is hard to study when it's happening, let alone when it hasn't happened for thousands of years? Yeah, well, that's a really good question, actually. And a lot of people dismiss the notion out of hand. I remember I was at a conference in India a long time ago and when I was still just sort of working on my uh, doctoral dissertation. And this guy at the table, he was some sort of uh, researcher, doctor, uh, German, I think, and he asked me what I was working on, and I said human sexual behavior in prehistory, and he practically spit his breakfast out on the table. He was, he was like, what are you, you're crazy. And he said, behavior doesn't leave fossils. That's ridiculous. What do you do, close your eyes and dream? Just completely dismissed it. Oh, wow. Well, fuck that guy, because in right. fact, uh, you can study human behavior in prehistory, although it doesn't leave fossils. What it does is, especially the sexual behavior of our ancestors, is reflected in the evolved design of our bodies. Interesting. So just, yeah, just like you can, you know, if, if somebody found a, an animal, a mystery animal, and, you know, brought it into a laboratory and said to biologists, All right, what kind of animal is this? What is it? Let's say the animal's got a thick layer of subcutaneous fat. What's that tell you? Lives in a cold environment, right? It's probably lives in an aquatic environment. If it's got webbing between its toes, well, that tells you for sure it lives in an aquatic environment, right? I mean, if it's got a blowhole, it, it's, you know, a, a, an aquatic mammal. So there are all sorts of things. If its eyes are in the front of its head, it's a predator. If they're on the sides of its head, it's prey. Um, all sorts of interesting things you can learn from reading a body. And the same thing happens in terms of sexuality. So we can look at, for example, the fact that Human males have testicles outside their bodies. That's not standard. That's unusual. A lot of mammals have their testicles inside their bodies. The size of the human testicle relative to the overall body size of the male tells us how promiscuous the females of our species have been. The pH of the woman's uh, reproductive tract, the vaginal tract, the way that the ovaries work, the way that orgasm, the pulses every eight-tenths of a second in orgasm, all sorts of things. The, the chemical composition of semen tells us all sorts of things. So what these things tell us tells a certain story, right? So the human body is one of four sources of information that we used in Sex at Dawn. The other three are contemporary psychosexual research. For example, what sorts of things are difficult in relationships? What sorts of issues people bring to couples therapy and what sorts of uh, fetishes and online porn people like to look at, all these sorts of things. That's one area. Another area is anthropology. So we're looking at particularly hunter-gatherer people who are still existing, who have been studied by anthropologists or accounts from first contact, you know, Captain Cook or Columbus or, you know, missionaries, Jesuit missionaries that were living with uh, native tribes before they got acculturated. And then the the last area that we look at is primatology. So we're looking at apes, uh, particularly the apes close, most closely related to humans, which are the chimp and the bonobo. So looking at those four areas that all reflect some aspect of our pre-agricultural past, if they all tell the same story, 
then you can extrapolate from that and say, okay, we can be pretty certain that we're right about this, right? Because these four different sources of information are congruent. So that's what we did in Sex at Dawn. Oh, interesting. Wow. People must just debate with you constantly, you know, this, oh, this can't be right, this can't be right. I mean, I guess that's any field, really, but it seems like... Yeah, but you're right that I think this is a field where people feel more comfortable disputing the so-called experts because everybody considers themselves an expert, right? Everybody's had sex, everybody has sexual feelings, and everybody, um, these feelings are extremely intimate. So we feel that what we experience is normal, right? We're very quick to say, look, what I enjoy. That's normal. What everyone else is into is weird. And, you know, that's why there's so much rage and disgust and discomfort around same-sex relationships, you know, among a lot of heterosexual people or, you know, there's in the United States, there's all sorts of hysterical energy around sexuality that involves anyone, you know, two different age groups. You know, even if both are adults, people get creeped out. But if, you know, adolescence and stuff like that, it, it, you know, can't even really talk about it here. Um, that's not standard across cultures. Cultures are extremely arbitrary and, and there's a wide variation among the, you know, things that are considered normal in different cultures. So in Sex at Dawn, what we did was started off talking about food because that's the other area where I think everybody sort of is like, you know, what, what is comfortable for me is normal. I'm guilty of this as anyone else. I was raised in the U.S., you know, so for me, eating a cow's rump is completely normal, but eating its tongue is disgusting. Right. You know, why is that? You know, there's no logic to that, you know, eating pigs, that's normal. Eating dogs is horrible. Oh, my God. Well, that's purely arbitrary. There's no pigs are as smart as dogs, you know, so. Um, anyway, so yeah, you're right. We get a lot of, uh, a lot of people disagree, especially because the conclusion that we reach in the book is that long-term sexual monogamy does not come naturally to our species at all. And in fact, we are designed by evolution to seek novelty in our sexual relationships. So that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah, I think definitely fights against what a lot of people are taught as well. Well, I live in San Francisco, so it's it's a little different here. But growing up in Michigan, people had pretty definite opinions on what was supposed to happen when you grew up and got married and who that was supposed to be and what was supposed to happen. Exactly. And and a lot of people fail at that. Right. So that makes it even, you know, the arguments even more vehement because it goes against what people are taught and what they're teaching. But it resonates with something that a lot of people experience. I mean, I remember I was on this TV show one time and it was me and two other guys. And, and after the cameras stopped rolling and everything, we were sitting there and one of the guys said to me, well, your book sounds really interesting, but, you know, I love my wife. I have no temptation to be with anyone else. I'm completely monogamous. And the other guy's like, yeah, me too. My, my wife's great. I never do anything. And I said, well, that's fine, guys. You know, this, the book's not about advocacy. We're not telling you you should, you know, go out and be a swinger or something. We're just saying this is the nature of our species. Um, but by the way, do you guys look at porn? And they both said, yeah. I said, and do you look at the same woman all the time? <laughs> they said, uh, no. Well, then there you go. There's your evidence, right? It doesn't have to be behavioral. It can just be appetite, you know, and that's that's what we're talking about here. Right. That's an interesting distinction because I think a lot of people are like, oh, my God, if this is nature, then I'm screwed because... I'm in a relationship and I kind of like how that's going and I don't want to break it open into this open relationship. But you're saying, listen, man, I mean, you don't have to go and throw spears at things either. Right. Right. Exactly. With that, you know, you've mentioned the TED talk earlier. The, the uh, image I used in the TED talk was I said monogamy is like vegetarianism. It doesn't come naturally with our species. Our species is omnivorous. You can tell that by looking at our teeth and our saliva, our digestive system sort of parallel to what I was saying earlier about our reproductive system. But you can decide to be a vegetarian, and that can be an ethical, healthy, economical, you know, decision. There's no reason to condemn that decision. But just because you've decided to be vegetarian doesn't mean that bacon suddenly doesn't smell good anymore. Right, yeah, (laughs) exactly. That's a great one because I think a lot of people feel strongly about that as well, and it's a lot less controversial in other ways 
that could actually offend people and get them to stop listening to you for no reason. Yeah, although I do get the hard time from vegetarians sometimes who eh. say, I hate the way bacon smells. Like, oh, come on. Well, yeah. It's a metaphor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, okay. You've never desired meat? Okay, sure. All right. You've never had bacon? Got yeah. it. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you've you've spent 20 plus years studying this stuff across different cultures. That's a question we get a lot because we, you know, we train the practical and applicable side of, of a lot of this stuff, right, as best we can. And a lot of people say, oh, well, this isn't going to work for me because I live in Europe or this isn't going to work for me because I live in Asia. And then, of course, the real excuse makers who just don't want to do anything say this isn't going to work for me because you're in L.A. and I'm, you know, I live in Chicago. Uh, things are different here. Things are totally <laughs> different here. You know, this is all biology, attraction, sexuality, things like that. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you've got the Ph.D., but these are biological bases here. These are sociological and biological bases that don't differ that widely, say, from United States to Germany to Qatar to China. Right. There's some variation even on the biological level. Like, for example, I was talking about testicular volume earlier. The, the reason testicular volume is indicative of something is that when the females of a given species are promiscuous, what happens is the males evolve larger testicles and create more sperm cells for each ejaculate so that when they have sex with a female, they, you know, ejaculate more sperm cells because the competition to impregnate that female is happening within her reproductive tract. Right. So, right. which freaks guys out a lot when you explain, right? I'm sure. Well, it freaks them out till they watch a gangbang on Pornhub or whatever, right? I <laughs> mean, that's one of the most prominent popular porn genres. There's a reason for that, you know? Otherwise, why would straight guys get turned on by watching, you know, three guys and one woman? It doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. It's because it resonates with something very deep in our species, in our species memory. So there's a very direct sort of biological argument to be made there. And there are many other aspects of that. I mean, something like female copulatory vocalization, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, when women moan when they're having sex. Why is it when you hear your neighbors having sex, you generally hear the woman? Right. You don't hear the man. Right. Yeah. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you've got the right neighbors. So, you know, why is that? I, I was talking to a friend about this, a gay guy, and he said, you know, it's funny because even in gay relationships, it's generally the more effeminate partner who makes more noise in bed. Now, oh. I don't have any, you know, hard numbers for that, but it was funny to hear that. That'd be an interesting study. Yeah, definitely. Well, there are people who have studied this. There are academic articles on female copulatory vocalization among primates, including humans. There are guys standing around with directional microphones right now in the Amazon, you know, trying to pick up the sound of monkeys having sex. Friggin' perverts, man. It's going, those guys are from Pornhub. They're not from, <laughs> they're not scientists. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, in the species where the females are more promiscuous, they make more noise. In species where the females are monogamous or they're in a harem, like in gorillas, where there's one male and several females, the females don't make any noise when they have sex. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff. You know, the, the, the shape and size of the penis is another dead giveaway that uh, human ancestors were promiscuous. There are lots of them. Why is that a dead giveaway? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, what happens is all these things are indicate the presence of what scientists call sperm competition in our ancestors. So is as I was referring to earlier, it's when the competition between males takes place at the level of the sperm cell and not at the level of the individual male, right? Mm -hmm. When because the story that we're told is that men compete and then the woman chooses or the winner gets the woman, right? And that's it. And she's now she's, uh, you know, faithful to him, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it works in gorillas. The males compete. The normally the biggest, strongest male wins. The others get kicked out of the group. They have to go wander around in these gangs of frustrated bachelors. And the silverback takes control of the females. And he's the only one who has sex with those females, right? It sounds a lot like the nightlife scene here or anywhere in L.A. or New York. Yeah. 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 Alpha males. Ro more, more just the roving, frustrated bachelors. Oh, that part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely.
Back to the show. So what happens is the evolutionary pressure you can imagine over many generations is that the biggest, strongest males are the ones that reproduce. So those genes get passed into the future. So that's why a male gorilla is about twice the size of a female because the males are evolving to be bigger and bigger and stronger, right? So you've got this sort of runaway evolutionary train toward bigger and stronger males. But then what happens is there's no reproductive pressure at all on the male's reproductive system because he's the only male who's stooping those females, right? The other, the competition's all out of the picture. So there's no reproductive evolutionary pressure on the male's reproductive organs. So you get a species like the gorilla that can be 500 pounds, but his erect penis is the size of your pinky finger and his testicles are the size of kidney beans and they're up inside his abdomen. They're not hanging out in a scrotum like with humans, chimps and bonobos. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an indication of how the genitalia evolves in the absence of sperm competition. But then when you've got sperm competition, like in humans, chimps and bonobos, you get much bigger testicles, bigger penis. The human penis is the longest and thickest of all primates, um, even relative to body size. The only one that comes close is the bonobo, which is just as uh, horny and crazy as humans, <laughs> maybe even more so. Chimps and bonobos have testicles the size of chicken eggs. Wow. And then they're also outside the body in an external scrotum, which, if you think about it, is a pretty risky place to have your, yeah. your balls, right? Yeah, just inconvenient, dangerous. There's a lot of things wrong with that, yeah. Exactly. So in Sex at Dawn, what we say is having an external scrotum is like having an extra fridge in the garage just for beer. <laughs> yeah. Right? If you're a guy who's got a fridge full of beer in the garage... You're a guy who expects a party to break out at any instant, right? right? Any moment. You've got three cases, children ready to go. Well, that's what an external scrotum is. It keeps your sperm cells a little cooler than your body temperature, which allows them to be preserved so you can hold more in reserve for that, you know, quick ejaculation. And then you've got some more ready for another two, three, four. Right. For when the guys come back from the Amazon with their shotgun microphones and upload the <laughs> stuff to the internet, you, you're still right. ready for it. Yeah. You don't want to have performance anxiety. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. By the way, here's a funny one for you. Yeah. Just, I can tell you like this sexual uh I'm just, uh, I really haven't trivia. grown out of it. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the ways to tell if a woman is faking an orgasm uh, whether she curls her toes or not. Interesting. Humans curl our toes when we come. They can't stop it. It just happens. Now, some women who hear me say this will be like, oh, I got to remember yeah. to curl my toes. For extra authenticity. <laughs> the thing is, most guys are, are not like, hmm, let me see what her feet are doing right now. Although now we're going to have to figure yeah. that out. Yeah. You got to have, have a mirror system yeah, set up. Some or something. complex yoga. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the the reason we curl our toes apparently is goes all the way back to our monkey days in the trees six or seven million years ago, you know, ape days. If you're having sex in a tree, your toes curl so you won't fall out of the tree. That's kind of amazing. And now tell me, <laughs> when you guys think of this stuff or figure this stuff out, you don't have direct proof of this or do you just look at other primate behavior and you're like, that has to be it? Or is it just like a really clever guess? Yeah, I mean, the toe curling thing, that's speculation, of course. There's no way to prove that, right? Um, but as far as, like, the other stuff I was talking about, the size of um, the volume of testicles and so on, you know, you look at a couple hundred species of primates and you see the correlation holds up across, you know, with no exceptions, right. then you can be pretty sure that that's what's going on. And also it makes logical sense, right? Bigger testicles are creating, you know, higher sperm counts and you can confirm that the sperm counts are higher, which has been done. You know, that's not speculation. That's pretty clear. Now, some people say, well, yeah, but the human testicles are smaller than the chimps and the bonobos. Therefore, we're more monogamous. Yes, they're smaller than chimps and bonobos, um, but they create much more sperm per gram of tissue Wow. than any monogamous primate. So they're just more efficient. They're very efficient. And the DNA that controls the volume, the size and volume of testicles is the DNA that reacts most rapidly to any environmental change in the entire genome. 
So what we argue in Sex at Dawn, and this is speculative, is that monogamy itself may be shrinking men's testicles. Oh, man. Culturally enforced monogamy. Because if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, yeah. right? Think about it in terms of myopia, right? 10,000 years ago, if you had myopia, you were kind of screwed. If you can't see well, you're going to have trouble with hunting, with chipping arrows, with doing a lot of things. So you're probably not going to be very popular if you survive at all. And if you do survive, you're probably not going to have a lot of babies and, you know, because you're not going to be getting laid very often, whatever. So through various mechanisms, the genetic combination that leads to myopia is going to be constantly filtered out of the gene pool, right? Right. But once you've got glasses, then it's no longer an issue. And so myopia can spread. Lots of kids can be born with that same genetic combination. It doesn't really matter. Everybody just puts on glasses. It's fine. So it spreads quite rapidly through the population. Same thing. If you've got very low sperm count and you're having sex in a promiscuous species, you'd be getting laid left and right just like everybody else, but your sperm's not fertilizing anybody because it's competing with all this other sperm that's much stronger and more plentiful and so on. So even though you're having a great time, you're not biologically fathering children, right? Sure. But once you've got enforced monogamy, and it's enforced on the females, right? There was no expectation of male monogamy until a couple of decades ago. Right. Um, but since, you know, forever, since agricultural times, female monogamy has been enforced ruthlessly and still is with execution in many cases. So once you've got a woman who will only have sex with you, then eventually you'll probably get her pregnant, even though you've got a very low sperm count. So what's that mean? It means that that genetic combination goes on into the future. Your sons will probably have that very low sperm count as well, right? Yeah. But they'll be monogamous. So their wives will be monogamous. So it'll. So you end up with people who have very low sperm counts, which if you look at the numbers, the, the male sperm count is plummeting in the last 50, 60 years since they really started looking at it. and also, it makes sense, therefore, that the volume of the testicles could also be reduced by this cultural innovation of, you know, enforced monogamy. Wow. The tagline for this is how monogamy is shrinking your balls. Could be. Wow. I mean, how long does that process take, though? Like thousands of years? It can happen in different speeds, different facets of the genome. Uh, respond at different speeds to to different levels of pressure. So, for example, you know, people typically in the sort of um, in the uh, the paleo community, there's the belief that you know our bodies haven't been haven't had time to evolve to modernity, and that's true in almost every respect. But there are areas, like I was saying, with myopia, right? That's something that can happen spread in just a few generations. Our ability to digest milk is something that's happened in the last few thousand years. That's very quick. Now, this gets kind of technical here because a lot of what we're learning recently is that a lot of what we would call evolution is really taking place in epigenetics, which is not the genes that exist in the DNA, but the genes that are expressed in the DNA. So you can have the same genetic makeup as your twin brother, for example, but if one of you is raised in a different environment with much more stress, say, or restricted uh, caloric intake or whatever, that can affect which genes are expressed from your uh, genome. Ah. Um, so that's epigenetics. Changes in the microbiome, which is, which is the bacteria um, digestive system, so changes in that can happen very quickly, like within a generation. This idea of, you know, that evolution always takes a long time. It's true according to a somewhat antiquated understanding of evolution. But now we're seeing that evolution happens on different dimensions that can happen much more quickly. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's super interesting because when you look at these different changes, it's easy to go, ah, well, you know, that stuff takes thousands of years. Or on the converse side, get really freaked out that it's, you know, it's happening to you because of behaviors and things like that. But both of those are kind of wrong, right? It's going to take long enough where you can correct yourself or we can correct course if we decide that that's even necessary. But you focused a lot of, in your research on societies and the way that sex is sort of 
I don't want to say used in society, maybe the, the role that sex has in society. And one of the interesting conclusions that you discussed that I saw was that sex was not for reproductive purposes in humans. Do you want to explain that a little bit? I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, it's sort of counterintuitive, but once you look at the numbers, you'll see that it's really true. Most species of mammals only have sex when the female is ovulating. And when I say most, I'm talking about more than 99%. They only have sex when the female is ovulating. And that makes perfect sense because if you think about it, you know, you're having sex, you're vulnerable, you're distracted, you might be making noise, you could fall out of the tree as we were talking about earlier. You know, I, I right. thought about how you could study that, by the way. You can, I'm sure you can pay college students to have sex in trees. This research <laughs> is not going to be hard to set up. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you've got, uh, you know, sex is dangerous. Diseases can be, uh, you know, passed from one to another. There are all sorts of dangers associated with sex. So it makes sense that a species would only do it when it matters, right? When the sure. female can get pregnant. But if you look at the numbers, humans have sex about a thousand times per birth. If you look at, as I did, you look at the frequency of intercourse among hunter-gatherers. These are people with no birth control, right? You look at the frequency of intercourse, you divide that by the number of pregnancies, and you find that it's roughly, you know, there's a lot of variation, but roughly about a thousand times per birth. Gorillas have sex about a dozen times per birth, and a dozen is much more typical of mammals. So why on earth would we be having sex a thousand times per birth if the purpose is reproduction? Right. And that's not to mention all the different ways we have sex that can't possibly lead to reproduction from masturbation to same sex to, you know, anal and oral and whatever. So it makes no sense that human sexuality among humans is primarily about reproduction. And once you understand that, then you see then human sexuality starts to make sense because you see that human sexuality has been co-opted over the generations for social purposes. And what it's used for among our ancestors, what it was used for is establishing and maintaining these complex social networks, which is what we do really well as a species. We cooperate, we keep track of one another, we take care of each other's kids, we share food, we hunt together, we gather together, we protect each other from predators and whatever. That's what we do. We form communities. And until the advent of agriculture, human sexuality was about establishing and maintaining these communities. We found many examples of uh, societies in the Amazon that literally believe that a fetus is made of accumulated semen. So a woman who wants to have a baby who's smart and strong and funny and good looking Make sure that she has sex with the smart guy, the funny guy, the strong guy, the good-looking guy to get some of the essence of each of those guys into this baby. And then when the baby's born, each of these guys will say, okay, I'm a father. Oh, yeah, I'm a father too. We're all They co-parent as fathers. It's called partable paternity. So my point is that human sexuality is about bonding and forming trust and intimacy. Once you get that and you see that reproduction is really an infrequent byproduct of human sexual uh, activity, then you see, well, wait a minute, then there's no conundrum around um, same-sex relationships, right? Because the big question everyone from the Pope on down is asking is like, well, wait a minute, you know, it's supposed to be Adam and Eve. It's man and woman. That's how we make babies. You know, it doesn't make sense, two men together. Well, it does make sense if you see that sex isn't about making babies. Right. It's about making relationships. So two men can do it, two women can do it, three people can do it. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean that's brilliant and very cool, very cool way to to start looking at things. It, that sort of takes a lot of the judgment out of pretty much all of it. This is complicated, I'm sure, and complex. But how does sex help manage relationships? I mean, the father example you gave from the, I guess, tribes or something like that, where each one feels like they're a father. Besides that, in our modern society, like in our in our Western society, what types of ways does sex, do we commonly see where sex is involved in maintaining relationships, maybe something non-obvious? Well, I think 
what we've done is we've sort of shot ourselves in the foot with sex because we've, especially in the United States, we've invested it with this sort of magical property that is unrealistic and that real life doesn't live up to. So we've got this sort of Disney Hollywood version of love, which is all about you know rose petals in the bed and candlelight dinners for 50 years. And, you know, the passion never fades. The fact is it does. So let's get real about that. And let's understand that love is not attraction. By the way, I, I just want to, you know, give you a little props here. I've never done any interviews on any of these, you know, uh, sites for teaching guys how to date and all that kind of stuff. I've avoided them assiduously, but I was looking at your site and I saw an analysis you did of Aziz Ansari. Oh, yeah. And that was so intelligently done and kind, I thought, you know, you weren't giving him a hard time. You were analyzing it. You were respectful and I like Aziz a lot, and he read our book, actually, and got in touch with me and all that. So when I saw that, I was interested. And you did that so well that I thought, okay, we're going to make an exception for this guy. This is a smart dude here. I appreciate you saying that. And I saw the retweet share that you did with that. So I appreciate you saying so, and I appreciate that as well. And, and I thought it was funny that Tucker Max went, ah, oh, that case study sucks. And then you were like, did you read the end? And he was like, not really. No, I didn't. Yeah, I saw that too. But, and you and Tucker know each other, right? Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy. And it's funny that it's just so classic that he would be like, that sucks. And then it's like, oh, maybe I should read it you know, yeah. before I say that. Oh, well, we're talking about how in our modern Western society, sex actually helps manage relationships or, or has a social role. And I was looking for some examples. I'll tell you, you, you asked for something, you know, sort of counterintuitive. One thing that I found in researching this book is that, you know, a lot of people, when they think about open relationships, the first thing they think is, oh, that's too risky, right? Uh, you know, my partner will have sex with someone else and, right. and then I'll lose him or her. And I think, interestingly, what I find is that the logic sort of is the opposite of that. The, the reality is the opposite of the expectation. Because what I've seen, and, and there's a great book called The Lifestyle by Terry Gold, G-O-U-L-D, which is about swingers. And what you find is that the swinger communities, they get together and they're not really, it's not primarily about sex. It's primarily about community. And that the women often have to be convinced to go. There's, there's the joke among swingers that, you know, it takes a man three hours to convince his woman to go to a, her first swingers party. And then it takes him three hours to convince her to leave. Uh, because <laughs> when the women get together, what they find is like, wow, I really like these women. These women are like me. and there's this sort of bonding that goes on um, about the fact that everyone in that room has gone beyond beyond worrying about that, beyond worrying that sex is going to draw their partner away or destroy their marriage. And then what you find is that the couples are experiencing sex together with other people, and they report being much happier than conventional marriages. Because they've got both worlds. They've got the stability of a long-term intimate relationship and the novelty of occasional new partners. It goes against what most people would expect. But if you actually dig into it and start to study this, what you find is that people uh, find greater intimacy and stability by opening up relationships. Now, that's not to say all relationships would benefit from that because a lot of relationships wouldn't uh, survive it. But, you know, you often hear this. People say, well, yeah, okay, but I've heard of open relationships and they fail. Okay. Have you ever heard of non-open relationships that fail? Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, let's compare apples to apples here, right? That's a really good point. I, you know, I never thought about that because even when people ask me, I'm like, well, you know, a lot of people I know that are in those are divorced, but I can only speak from the people that I know not trying to give a definitive answer because I'm not really involved in, in all that. But you're absolutely right. It's kind of like, well, yeah, I know far more many people that were in monogamous relationships that got divorced 
than people who are in non-monogamous relationships that got divorced. And proportionally, it still probably skews more in favor of people who are in the open slash non-monogamous being happier, staying together longer. I believe that research totally because there's just so many bad relationships that are usually based on the default, the society default is, uh, yeah, we're going to just do things this way. And usually when people are going by default, or I should say often when people are going by default, it's because they have no experience. They don't know, they don't have leadership. They don't have a vision of where the relationship is going to go, et cetera. So at least, you know, you look at people in these different sort of alt relationships, they've at least put like a modicum of thought into that and made a decision based on that stuff, which is more than 99% of us have ever really done. Right. Two points. One, you know, even your anecdotal feeling about this or anyone's anecdotal feeling about this it assumes that we know who among our friends are in open relationships. And a lot of people have all sorts of agreements that they don't share with anyone outside of the relationship because there's still a lot of stigma and condemnation around this. Right. Yeah. So we don't even know. It's like, you know, who was gay in the 50s? It was hard to tell because nobody was out about it. Right. And that's how open relationships are now. I, you know, obviously, since we published this book, we've, you know, met a lot of people and been invited into communities of people who are in alternative relationships. And most of them aren't out publicly because they would risk losing their jobs. You know, other people might not let them around their kids. I mean, there's all sorts of weird, you know, people think that if you're not conventional, you're some sort of pervert. You know, same thing they right. say about gay people. Like, oh, they're trying to steal our kids. Like, oh, come on, man. You know, it's... I'm pretty it's, sure gay people don't want kids most of the time. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's kind of part of the deal. No, I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> one of the best things about being gay. <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing you said, which was true, is that people are putting thought into it. In addition to the thought, they're putting communication into it. Because this stuff never works without a lot of communication and honesty about... You know, I'm sorry, that made me uncomfortable. I didn't expect it to, but it did. And okay, cool, we don't need to do that anymore. And, you know, how do you feel about this? And I mean, all that stuff needs to be negotiated. And then the last point I would make is that a lot of people are in open relationships, but they lie about it. So, you know, the husband considers it open, but he doesn't tell his wife that, you know, or vice versa. So polyamorous say we just do the same thing everyone else does, but we don't lie about it. Yeah, that, <laughs> right? Exactly. They put a plan into action to get what they want instead of lying. To, no, I, I didn't look at porn. I don't ever look at that stuff and you're clearing your browser history every day at five before your <laughs> wife gets home. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perfect. In your research, I, you know, we're big on practical stuff here at The Art of Charm. And as we're sort of bringing this to a little bit of a close, what in your research, there's tons, I'm sure, but what can you give us in this sort of audio-only format where you've learned, hey, listen, I've studied the crap out of this and guys are doing this wrong or, you know, we can improve our sexual relationships or just our relationship relationships this way. Is there something that you can leave uh, the guys with that they can, and girls for that matter, that they can put into action after they pull into the parking lot here at work or after their commute listening to us talk? Well, I would say the first thing, the most important thing is to stop shaming women for their sexuality. That, you know, you're pissing in your well every time you do that. If you want to have good relationships with women, you have to respect them. And you have to respect them for what they are. And what they are is homo sapiens. And as we've been talking about, homo sapiens are highly sexual species. As it happens, we live in a very sex-negative society. America, you know, pats itself on the back for being liberated all the time. But it's one of the least liberated countries on the planet. And I've been to most of them. So as far as sexuality goes, the most important advice I give to young men and women is, hey, if you know a woman who's having sex with three different dudes, that's cool. That's nobody's business. Don't give her a hard time about it. Don't talk about her behind her back. Don't disrespect her. You know, that's what she's doing. And as long as nobody's being hurt by it, there's no problem. Women have to feel uh, safe. They have to feel respected. And when they do, they open up and they have a good time and so does everyone else. If you look at societies, we talk about some matriarchal societies in Sex at Dawn where the women are very powerful, they own the property, the, the property passes from mother to daughter and so they're very respected. What you find is that women in those societies have as much or more, as many or more sexual partners as the men do. So 
you know, a woman who is sexually hungry and uh, enjoys sex is not a slut or whatever you want to call it. That's a woman. That's a normal human woman. There's nothing pathological about that. What's pathological is trying to make her feel bad about it because you're not only hurting her, you're hurting yourself, you're hurting the whole society because, you know, it's like making people ashamed for enjoying music. What good is that going to do? You know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, it's that's just a good silly. point. You just ruin the party for everybody. So that's the first advice I, I would give to people is support women in their sexuality, support them in their freedom. And, and you know, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but it's not just, you know, right wing, you know, anti-sex crusaders. They're also very left wing anti-sex crusaders in this country who consider themselves to be very liberal, who are actually... um ruining raining on the parade as well so it's it works on both sides of the political spectrum all right and yeah that is very true that is very true so how do we apply this within our own relationship because I, I see a lot of guys do this or at least i i guess i hear it sort of tendentially maybe read between the lines and i've seen my friends do it as well where it's like they'll simultaneously i guess what's the term slut shaming <laughs> they'll do that to like their girlfriend or their wife and then they're like ah I, you know my girlfriend's lame in bed and i'm like didn't you just make her feel like shit for all the guys that you both knew during college that you kind of assumed she hooked up with and you get in fights about that all the time and then you're expecting her to be intimate and not be like oh this is the same thing he got mad at me for with other people before we met exactly yeah if you want a partner who's funny, you can't constantly tell your partner she's not funny because you just cut down her ability to be funny, right? Same same thing with sex. If you you want a partner who's a good cook, you don't tell her how, what a shitty cook she is every time she tries, you know? Yeah. So you got to be supportive and and communicate, right? I mean, that's the whole key all the time, right? Talk about what you're into. Talk about what she's into. Give her what she's into, you know? And otherwise, you got no right to complain about any of this uh, as far as relationships go. You know, I, I like, I mean, I don't really have any dating advice. You and Tucker and you know, everybody handles that really well. I thought your thing on Aziz was great. You know, I think it's been a while since I read it, but I remember one of the things you said was like, be, know when to walk away, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know when, let it go. And because uh, we've got this idea that, you know, women love persistent dudes. I think one of the most important pieces of advice I give, I'm 52, right? And it took me probably 35, 40 years to learn this, is don't waste time with someone who isn't actually interested in you be, just because she's hot. You know, we get this idea that like she's hot, so I, I got to have it. I want her. I want. No, you don't. Once you get to know her, once that initial passion fades, you'll be bored or irritated by that person. So man up, say who you are, be honest about who you are, and let half the women walk away right away because now you've reduced the pool of people that you're actually going to be spending time on to the ones who are actually interested in you. It just cuts out your – it increases your odds of success immeasurably to be honest about yourself. When I started doing this doctoral research – I was living in Barcelona. I was single. I was, you know, hanging out and happy hour all the time. And I sort of had this like, yeah, who gives a shit attitude. And so I would meet a woman and she asked me what I do. And yeah, I'm doing a PhD. What's it about? Well, it's about how monogamy is not natural for humans, right? <laughs> That's like in the first 30 ah, seconds of meeting a woman. Right. So what happens? Half the women are just like, eh, see you later, right? But the half who stayed you know, I probably scored with 80% of them, right? Because they stayed like, oh, what kind of guy is going to say this to me within 30 seconds? That's intriguing. For a certain kind of woman, that's intriguing. Honesty is intriguing. Courage is intriguing. In my experience, women are looking for men who are authentic. And if that includes something that's uncomfortable or awkward to talk about openly, that just proves you're even more authentic. So there's some counterintuitive stuff that I think guys don't understand. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but that's been my experience. No, I mean, what we teach at the Art of Charm is essentially authenticity. It's a subtractive process, getting rid of the insecurity, getting rid of the fear of judgment. A lot of that stuff comes into play. And, and yeah, it, what it does is exactly what you said. It helps you screen in the right people because 
guys are like, oh man, women are so hard to meet. It's hard to get this, hard to get that. And then suddenly when you're being unapologetically yourself and not the kind of unapologetic like jerk who just does whatever he wants and it's like, I don't give a fuck, I'm being myself. Not those guys. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Not those yeah. guys. But the guy who's who does what you said where it's like, what are you studying? Well, you know, I'm doing this. And, you know, you get guys who are like, well, I don't want to tell somebody I don't know where to go in life because I'm an engineer and I, I'm not passionate about it. I'm like, try it. Try it for a weekend telling people when they say, what do you do? Well, I'm an engineer, but you know, honestly, it's not my passion, I wanna do something else. See which women respond to that. And it's like, the results are incredible because instead of acting like you've got it all figured out, you're telling, so you're becoming vulnerable with somebody right off the bat because you're not afraid to be judged, and boom, suddenly it's like a just a freshing drink of water through everybody else's bullshit, where it's all muted and, and sort of colored, filtered through insecurity, you're just, boom, authentic. It's It's a, Massive aphrodisiac, something else you can test in all your free time when you're not writing books and paying college students to bang it out in trees. <laughs> I'll keep it in mind, yeah. yeah, definitely. But thanks so much, Dr. Chris Ryan. Excellent show. I mean, really, really good stuff. I know a lot of times we we think about this stuff, we sort of hypothesize about this stuff, so it's really cool to see and hear the science behind it and uh, be able to take some and apply it in, in the real world. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. I told you he's interesting. Sex at Dawn, that's the book. ChrisRyanPhD.com is his website. Funny how monogamy is shrinking your balls. I wonder if that's proven or not. I should ask him. I guess we'll never know now. So just uh, maybe somebody out there, you can measure the circumference of your nuts. The guys have been married for a long time. Let us know. Actually, I don't want those emails. But interesting way to apply this stuff to your relationship it goes without saying, right? We've all been immature and shamed our girlfriends. Maybe you're listening to this, you're thinking, crap, I just did that. And you've got to actually create an environment where she feels comfortable expressing herself sexually. And it's a win-win, right? It goes without saying. This is how you want her to behave. You got to show her that it's okay and that you're not going to judge her for doing so. So thank you very much, Dr. Chris Ryan. Show feedback, guest suggestion. The show is a fanarchy. It's run by you, the fans. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone is a good fit, I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. It's how you can reach me as well. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Dr. Chris Ryan on Twitter. We're going to have that linked up in the show notes. Bootcamp live program details, bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Remember, two dots in there. If you're listening to this and you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, well, subscribe. I'm not going to beat that one to death. We also have our iPhone and Android apps at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone or slash Android. Those are free. So download, subscribe, automatically download to your head, to your brain. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. And please tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 